From the very beginning of our faith, love has always been of the essence of Christianity. It is not only part of the faith or a perspective from which to examine the faith, but it is unmistakably, integrally, and unavoidably central to what we believe, why we believe, and also how our belief is shaped and shapes us. Love is an attribute of God. We're told by John in 1 John 4, 8, God is love. Love is the summary of the law. So Christ teaches in Matthew twenty two thirty seven. He says, on these two commandments, love God and love neighbor, hang all the law and the prophets. Love is the impetus for the mission of Christ. John three sixteen. you know well, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Love is also the manner by which we are predestined to adoption. Ephesians 1, 4 through 5, it says, He chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him, in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ. Love is the chief commandment Christ teaches his disciples. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another as I have loved you, so you also must love one another. Love, we are told in the following verse, is a defining mark of the believer. John 13, 35. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. And John himself tells us in 1 John 4, 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Love is also the inseparable benefit of every believer. Romans 8, Paul tells us in verse 38, For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Love is inextricable from how we define the gospel. John 15, 13, Christ teaches us, Greater love has no one than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. That's how we understand what the gospel is, as Christ died for us, because he loved us. And you know this is true. Love is on every page of your Bible. It has connotations of affection, of devotion, of loyalty, but also of work and of sacrifice. It has been described as the greatest apologetic for Christianity is that Christians love. It's certainly one of our chief evangelistic tools, and it's something that we know that only the most wretched and wicked of people can go unmoved by when they think on love. But it's also true that love has conquered the most wretched people by its power. And we know that there are other religions that give voice to love. There are other ideologies that espouse loving other people in various ways. But none of their definitions, none of their prescriptions in any way compared to what we have in the teaching of the Bible. Christians haven't mastered it. No individual Christian has, has figured out how to love perfectly well. But we also know that it's not a platitude. It's not something that's ethereal. It's not, it's not an abstract concept that we think is nice. But it's something that we are called to do and to do well. It's how we identify ourselves with Christ. And our identity is tied into how we love. And so this morning we do well to, to try to understand what love is. And try to, try to understand from what Paul teaches in these few verses what love looks like and also how to give love. And so let's pray together and let's ask the Lord to teach us through this, this simple teaching in this brief passage. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, we thank you that you have loved us in the way that you have loved us. Lord, you have known us from before time. You have set your love upon us when we were completely unworthy. And you have manifested your love to us by sending your Son and you continue in showing that love by giving to us the gospel, the written word, which, 
we now hear. And we pray, Father, that by it you would teach us, by your Spirit's work in us, that we would hear your truth and that we would learn to love. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let me give you a quick reminder of, of, of where we've been so far in this book. We're not always together. If you don't know, I'm not the senior pastor. If you're a visitor with us, he's sitting back there. He's taking a, a brief rest. We allow him to do that sometimes. And so sometimes we have to do a little catch-up work and go back and figure out where we've been so far. And so if we're looking back through the beginning of 1 Thessalonians, we have Paul here who is writing a letter that is largely taken up with praising God and giving thanks for the work of the Spirit in this congregation. He has celebrated among them their faith and their love and their hope in Christ. He has rejoiced at how they have received the word from his preaching. They received the word uh, preached as the word of God, which it is, Paul says. As part of their receiving the gospel, they had turned away from the idols of the past, which they were in a culture that was steeped with idols as a Roman colony. And as, as part of rejecting their idols, they had caused trouble for themselves. And it had resulted in them having to suffer. And yet they had embraced that suffering because they loved Christ so much it was all worth it. And part of what Paul has written about is that he has, he has had a report. Timothy has gone to visit them. Paul didn't just abandon a church once he had been there. He had hoped to continue in relations. And he had sent Timothy to go and get a report from the Thessalonians. How are they, how are they doing? How are they faring knowing what they've done in receiving the gospel? How they've embraced the truth? How they've come together and yet it's caused them to suffer. And it's true that they were indeed suffering. They had been punished for embracing Christ. They had forsaken the old gods, and the result of forsaking those gods was it was a threat to the local economy. It, it, it was threatening their political stability because they were, they were not worshiping Caesar as God, but instead Christ as God. And they were not welcome. Their new identity and their new family was causing them trouble. And so Paul is very much concerned for them until so he wrote. And he encouraged them. He, he, he told them, this is what is worth rejoicing in you. And this is why you want to remain steadfast. And so after doing this, he then, he then begins to call them to specific attitudes and activities as a response of continuing in the faith. He called them, as we saw last time we, we met together and, and spoke on this topic in 1 Thessalonians 4, was the first of his calls to them. And it was a call to holiness, a particular kind of holiness, a call to, to sexual purity. To distinguish themselves from the culture in the way that was so common to thinking uh, among those that surrounded them. This morning we're looking at 1 Thessalonians 4, 9 to 10. And the call here is a call to love the brothers. And it's going to be followed by several other calls. We'll, we'll follow up in, in 11 and 12 and call to work. 13 to 18, a, a call to hope in the resurrection. Chapter 5, we'll get into a call to watchfulness and expectation as a part of the life of a believer. And it's going to conclude with these this kind of a multitude of calls to good order and discipline in the church. And in, in hearing those calls and hearing the, the, the different ways Paul is speaking to them, it reminds us something about our faith. Our faith is an energetic faith. Our, our faith is an active faith. Our faith is a demanding faith. Our faith requires that we work. And that is not less true when we look at the topic of love. This, this morning, we're going to ask, as we look through these verses, three, three points you can see from this, three questions that we'll ask of this text. First, what is brotherly love? We read in verse 9. And then in, in verse 10, Paul's going to, to, to use a phrase, and, and it's going to result in us asking the question, what is it to be taught by God? That's our second question. What does it mean to be God-taught? And then thirdly, we will, we will see what would it look like if love abounded among us. We'll, we'll see that in the latter part of, of, of verse 10. And so for, first off, what is brotherly love? Look again, verse, verse 9, the first 
part of that sentence, Paul writes, But concerning brotherly love, you have no need that I should write to you. Paul begins with, with sort of another commendation of the church. He's saying concerning brotherly love, you, you seem to have, have figured this out. You seem to be doing this quite well. And maybe you're asking the question, why does Paul say, uh, concerning brotherly love, you have no need that I should write you? And Paul immediately writes them about brotherly love. It's a little bit interesting. And if you go back through what he's written, both in in 1 Thessalonians and what he's also uh, writing in 2 Thessalonians, you're going to find out that Paul is actually very preoccupied with love. If you go back to chapter 1, verse verse 3, he talks about and, and celebrates their labor of love. Then in, as we jump ahead to, to 1 Thessalonians 3, 6, he says, Now that Timothy has come to us from you and brought us good news of your faith and love. A little later in that same chapter, he says, And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all. Then chapter 5, we, we're not there yet, but Paul's going to, to say, Let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the, breast, the breastplate of faith and love. And later in that same chapter, he commends their leaders to them, and he recognizes, he, he, t- he calls on them to recognize their leaders, the, the elders of the church. And, and he says, to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. And as we jump into to the next book, we'll, or the next letter, he'll celebrate again this part of them. And he says that the love of every one of you all abounds towards each other. And then he prays for them as well. He says, may the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and the patience of Christ. And so Paul, it turns out, he's quite preoccupied with their love. And he says he has no need to write to them, but he's absolutely going to write to them about it. And, and so why does he do this? Well, Part of what he's doing, what he's likely doing here, is he's responding to a question. This is actually kind of a formula that shows up in, uh, throughout Paul's letter. Where he says, but now concerning, and typically that means he's responding to a question that they've asked. They're asking a question about the extent of brotherly love. What, what's the place of this, the, this doctrine among us? And there, there's actually five good reasons that we should know that they would have a concern for brotherly love that, that's rooted in their experience of life in the church. And so I want, you to, I want you to think through these with me and think through your own experience as we do this. First off, there's this, this reality that Christ taught his disciples that faith fractures family. That not in, not in every case, certainly that's not the case. And we, we can think about the wonderfully, uh, powerfully connecting of covenantal families through love. But there's also the reality that the gospel is a divider. Jesus taught in Matthew 10, 21, Now brother will deliver up brother to death, and a father his child, and children will rise up against their parents and cause them to be put to death. Why? Because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel is a divider socially and financially and legally and criminally. There were, there were separations that were taking place in family, and that's still true throughout the world. Get any issue of Voice of the Martyrs. Find about those that are converted in countries that are hostile towards Christianity. Find out what it costs them to identify with Jesus. It is expensive, not only in terms of your wallet, but in terms of your, the very relationships that you have you're most trusted in for the entirety of your life, the family. They were experiencing this in Thessalonica. They were, there were those who had embraced Christ and it had cost them. And so they were looking for family. A second, third, a second thing that's, that's part of, of their experience and their, their need for family in this way is, is the identity they had because of the house churches. So I don't know if you've noticed it. If you, if you read through the Acts or if you read through the, the epistles, you'll find a frequent reference to the church meeting in their house. One of the examples I'll give you, Romans 16. 
Paul says in 16.3, he says, Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their own necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. Likewise, greet the church that is in their house. He sends the, the, this, this greeting to a house. And again, you find this in a multitude of occasions of, of a greeting to the, the house, uh, the, the church that is meeting in this house. Different individuals who had embraced Christ, who had capacity, were welcoming people into their home. And imagine what it's like when you're coming out of those, those family divisions, when your family has rejected you because you've given your loyalty to Jesus Christ. And suddenly you've been cut off from this root and this foundation, this expectation. Your financial well-being was tied to the, the future of your family, the, the love and comfort that goes on uh, uh, from parents to, to children among siblings. Is that you've suddenly been cut off from that. But then here's this other home that's welcoming you in, this weekly occasion as they're meeting together on the Lord's Days. Here's a group of people who welcomes you into their home where families live, and they're making you part of it. It becomes part of their experience. They would have, they would have seen and experienced love in that context. Another thing that they would have experienced as part of life in the church is that the term brother is, is a ubiquitous term for a fellow believer in the church of Christ. Again, 1 Corinthians 16, 19, it says, The churches of Asia greet you, Aquila and Priscilla greet you heartily in the Lord with the church that's in their house. In their house. And it goes on, it says, All the brethren greet you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. That's a, that's a family kind of thing. Christ and Paul and, and Luke and Peter, all, all the apostles are using this term to refer to other believers to tell us fundamentally how you think of yourself. The first word that you are called is brother. Sister, you are family. And then we think about the commands that we find in the New Testament, the one another commands. It's, they're, they're, they're everywhere. There's, a, there's 58, by my count, I could be wrong on this, by my count, there are 58 total love, or, one another commands in the New Testament. In some ways where something is, is extolled. Sometimes those are positive, sometimes they're negative. About 44 out of 58, a little over 75% of the commands are positive directions given to the body of Christ. And of those 44 positive commands, guess what 17 of them are? It is the repeated command to love one another. One out of three times you're, you're commanded positively in the New Testament, something that you're supposed to do and be towards others in the church is to love one another. And of course that's true. Of course that's obvious that, that, you, you are, that the way in which we manifest all the good things that we do towards others is by loving them. Everything we do is an, is an extension of our love for others. And then there's a fifth part of their identity, and the, the reason that, that, that this idea of brotherly love is important. In Galatians 3.27, one of the many uh, very indicative passages in the New Testament, but there are so many like it. Paul writes, For as many, as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, his family, and you are heirs according to the promise. The need for a family of love was essential to this group of people who are so eclectic, comprised of people from every tongue and tribe and people and nation being drawn together and the way in which they would see each other as, as disparate as they were in their identities is that they had this shared identity of they were family, which transcends all those other divisions. 
If you had spent five minutes under Paul's preaching, you would have picked up on this idea of brotherly love because you can't not preach it apart from the gospel. If you picked up any New Testament epistle, you would have learned what it was. If you had been five days in any church, this would have been part of your life is to see yourself deeply connected to one another in brotherly love. They knew their theology. They knew that suffering came from embracing the truths of Christ. And they knew that they had a need for family. And so they were drawn together in ways that were demanding. And there was another reason that that this this had to be taught by Paul. And we even see it in the context and some of what he addresses. It's, it's, It's revealed that there are issues in the church, as we saw last time we looked at this. There were issues with sexual immorality. We see those in verses 3 through 8. And we're going to see in the next couple of verses after it, we'll address a little bit a little bit more this morning and again in the future, is there were issues with work ethic, how people were living together with other people and what kind of life they should be living. And there were issues with their relations to the leaders in the church, as Paul would commend them later on. And so this was, this was a wonderful church. This is not Corinth, as many problems as they had. But they still needed the teaching. They still needed to understand brotherly love. And so Paul gives them his reply here in Verse 9, he says, concerning brotherly love, you have no need that I should write to you. And then he goes on, he says, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. He, on the one hand, commends them for the work that they're doing and that they have been doing. But he also points them to a theological truth that grounds their love for one another, their brotherly love. What is it? It's that they've been taught by God. So what does it mean to be be God taught? Well, if you look at uh, at the beginning there, Paul uses a compound word, Philadelphia. You know the word brotherly love. You've heard this a million times in sermons for good reason. Uh, and that, that, that phrase occurs about five or so times in, in the New Testament. But here's a, here's a word that Paul is going to use, another compound word, probably a made-up Pauline word. He likes to do that sometimes. A lot of times he'll do it just throwing a couple of words together because they serve his purpose. And here the, the term he uses is theodidactos. And you, you get the term didactic, meaning taught, and theo, meaning God. And he puts those together to root them in their identity with the Old Testament saints. Isaiah 54, for example, we read in the context of the, the redemption of, of, of Israel out of their exile. Judah is going to be redeemed. We hear these, these covenant blessings that are foretold by, by the prophet Isaiah. He says in Isaiah 54, 13, All your children shall be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children. And the Lord Jesus is actually, he's going to pick up this passage and he's going to use this in in speaking about the significance of the election uh, of of his disciples. He says in John 6, 43, do not murmur among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, they shall all be taught by God. Therefore, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. What he's saying is that when the Spirit of God works in a heart, calling someone to, to himself, is that God, that is the, the, the election of God being worked out for them, is going to create for them a new identity. They're going to be reshaped in their priorities. They're going to understand things of the Lord. Their, their heart is going to be reshaped so that they, they have right priorities, right convictions, right, right aversions to sin, and right loves which includes the love for one another. We go back again to what was our Old Testament reading this morning from Jeremiah 31. 
There the prophet spoke the words of the Lord, and the Lord said, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. It goes on, he says, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them. Again, the writer of Hebrews picks up on this. Hebrews 18, 8, 8 verse 10. He says, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. God's new covenant people, unlike the covenant breakers among their forefathers, the new covenant people are going to have the law so written on their hearts that it's inescapable, and their loyalty to the Lord will persevere. Again, we could read from the prophet Micah. He says, Many nations shall come and say, Come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways, and we shall walk in his paths. It pictures the Gentiles coming in and also being God taught. Telling us that the Spirit teaches, the Spirit changes, the Spirit reorients us. And again, other writers in the New Testament pick up on this as well. Listen to 1 Peter 1. Go ahead and turn your Bibles to 1 Peter 1, verse 22. Peter, in, in, in 1 Peter 1, verse 22, he, he writes to a church that is suffering persecution, just as this church in Thessalonica. And it reminds them of who they are and how they relate to one another. He says, Since you yourselves have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit, in sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart, having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible, through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. Because all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man is the flowers of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Now this is the word which, by the gospel, was preached to you. Paul, Peter there makes that connection. He says, if you are born again by the word, the same word will make you a lover of the brethren. Your heart is changed so that you love of course, the, the, the Apostle John seems obsessed with love. We turn to, to 1 John chapter 2. We read, But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you know all things. I have written to you because you... I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you know it and that no lie is of the truth. Verse 27, 1 John 2. But the anointing which you have received from him abides in you, and you do not need anyone to teach you. But as the same anointing teaches you concerning all things... And is true and is not a lie. And just as it is taught you, you will abide in him. And then what does that mean? He tells us in chapter 3, verse 10. In this, the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Again, verse 14, we know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. Do you get it? Do you, do you understand that, that, that when you identify with Christ, you're going to identify with Christ. You are going to be changed by him to be like him, to do what he wants you to do, to, to be taught by him. Again, Christ was the one who said, on this hangs all the law and the prophets that you love your neighbor and that you love your God. And then he would teach his disciples, by this all men will know that you are my disciples. How if you, will, if you love one another as I have loved you? 
What Paul is teaching here is in response to his Savior, his King, his Lord, who has directed him to to preach such a gospel, to teach such a gospel, to to shape a people in this direction. And they know this already, but they're being reminded of it again anyway, because, as Pastor Robbins always tells us, we need reminders. So what would Christ have you understand? He would have you understand that love is the greatest burden that you can ever have placed on you. There is nothing heavier than to love others. Again, think through the the biblical commands. You're commanded to love your brother. You're commanded to love your neighbor. You're commanded to love the stranger that you don't know. And you're commanded to love your enemy. And it's haunting you, this command to love, because everywhere you go, whoever you look at, there's no one that's going to be outside of that command. You have to love them all. Look around, there's no person in this room that you can look at and say, nope, not them. Every single one in this room is a recipient of the love that Christ commanded and says, this is what my people do. You get no pass on anyone. Everyone is a target for love. There's no greater burden because there's nothing more comprehensive that's required of you as a believer. And at the same time, it's also the greatest freedom that you can enjoy as a believer. Listen to what Jesus teaches in Luke 6. Luke 6, 32 gives us this very important teaching. It, it still weighs heavily on us, but it, but it moves us towards our freedom. And I, and I want you to understand this properly. Jesus says in Luke 6, 32, but if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. If you lend to those From whom you hope to receive back, what credit is that to you? For even sinners lend to sinners to receive as much back. But love your enemies. Do good and lend, hoping for nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. Do you see how freeing this is? You can fire your accountant right now if he he calculates love for you. You don't need anyone to keep score for you. You don't need a bookkeeper to know how much love you're supposed to give. You never have to decide, is this a proportional amount of love to return? You never have to ask, is this person worthy of my hospitality? Do they fit into who I can be hospitable to? You never have to contemplate revenge because vengeance is left to the Lord. Your duty is going to be to love at all times. This is something that's freeing because you can settle into it. You can make your peace with it. You can say, this is what he expects of me. He owns me. I'm obligated to him because he's done everything for me so I can do everything for everyone else. You don't have to count the cost to you because you don't need to spare any of you. We see that the Thessalonians seem to, to, to get this. They, they have received this instruction on brother love and they continue to receive it. And it's manifest in this is that their love is working itself out, not just in their local congregation. Maybe you remember Paul's earlier celebration back as he opened up the letter, chapter 1. He says, we give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. And he goes on, he says, for our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power. And in the Holy Spirit, and in much assurance, as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake, and you became followers of us, but more importantly, and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia who believe. 
For from you the word of the Lord has sounded forth, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith toward God has gone out. So we don't need to say anything. Again, Paul's saying we don't need to say anything to you because we're seeing it from you. They had a reputation in those nearby cities, Neapolis, Philippi, Amphipolis, Apollyana, and also going down south to, to Achaia, to, to Corinth, and Cetria, and Athens, that people were learning of their love for Christ, and it, they're working itself out. But now we're learning that it is love that is spreading abroad, is that other people are experiencing their love. They're hearing the testimony of it, but also receiving from them. So what Christ said has been manifest. They, they, they have loved and by it, people know that they are his disciples. Well, last thing we, we would ask of this text, this text is, what does it mean for love to abound? And you know, it, it, there's, a, there's a period after Macedonia, it seems like that's the end of the sentence, and maybe this is, this is going to be a continuation on to, to, to verse 11. And I think it is a continuation on, but it's not disconnected. Paul says, uh, Paul says there, but concerning brotherly love, you should have... No need that I should write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. And indeed, you do so toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, that you increase more and more. And he says that you also aspire to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, to work with your own hands as we command you, that you may walk properly toward those who are outside and that you may lack nothing. As we saw before, this is, this is Paul talking about what it means to, to be sanctified in, in Christ, what it means to grow in holiness, to, in set-apartness, in belongingness to Christ. And it's keeping the commandments of God. It's hearing, and it's obeying, and it's working itself out. And it's going to work itself out in this, this connection to, to having and living an orderly life. It's going to be something that demands something of them, to be diligent and self-responsible and careful about how they walk, to be... One who lives a life as a giver and not a taker. Love is that makes that kind of demand. Paul writes of this as well in Romans 13. He says in verse 8, Owe no one anything except to love one another, for he who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet. If there's any other commandment, are all summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. I hope if, as you're hearing this, as you're understanding this word, that you're, you are making application. But I think we can, we can be specific and make a few, go in a few more pointed directions as, as we close out the text. His, his command to abound, to love one another as you have, and still more, to increase in love. It, it's, it's a fulfillment of that, that replete command, those 17 commands in the New Testament, to love one another. It's this part of our identity. It's inseparable for who we are. Again, John writing to us says, For this is the message you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. And he goes on, he, he illustrates, he says, Not as Cain, who was of the wicked one, and murdered his brother, and why did he murder him? Notice, like, everybody's going to get that. Yeah, no one's thinking about murdering each other, right? I mean, hopefully, nobody's thinking of that. But Paul, John writes that, and he goes on. He says, Let, now, let's understand why Cain was a murderer of Abel. He says, because his works were evil and his brothers righteous. There's this distinction between those who love and those who hate, those who are murderers and how they're oriented. It's a question of righteousness and wickedness. Whose works are what and the envy that goes on in between. 
He says, do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. He goes on, he says, this is his commandment that we should believe on the name of the Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave commandment. This is concurrent with the gospel. If you receive Christ by faith, if you turn away from your sins and are looking towards heaven, you are inviting yourself to be one who loves the brothers. Again, John says, let us love one another for love is of God and every who loves is born of God and knows God. Beloved, if God so loved us, he says, we also ought to love one another. That means there is no room for not loving other believers. They can be strange, they can be annoying, they can be faltering, they can be weak in the flesh, but whatever condition they are in, they exist to be loved by you because they are your family. And they are loved by Christ. And you have so been loved by Christ when you have been all those things, strange, annoying, faltering, weak in the flesh. This is your experience before God. And yet his love persists and the action of his love continues If you want to know if you are growing in sanctification, if you are becoming Christ-like, the question you ask is, am I loving those around me? Again, Paul will help us from another passage in teaching us what brotherly love is. One of those, those times he uses the term. Romans twelve nine. he says, Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. And then he says, Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love, in honor giving preference to one another, not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. That, that kindly affectionate term is a, it's kind of funny. He does something here, uses different Greek terms to do it. But he says, he says, you need to family love each other with a family love. He's really emphasizing that this, this family element. And how do families love? I mean, it, families get this wrong. Families are not perfect in their love. But there is something that's ordinary and expected with families is that they, they, they have and they show affection towards one another. There's a sense that we, that we like each other and we love each other and, and we want the others to know it. And families, especially as a place where things go unreciprocated, unrewarded in how they're loved. If you're a mother, the way that you love your children is not something your children frequently reward you for. I'm just going to go ahead and commend you right now. It is not always noticed. It is always, there's not always this display of thankfulness. And for some reason, you women keep loving people despite that lack of love in return. It's something instinctive in you, but you would even raise that to another level if it's, if it's because you embrace Christ that you love that way. With families, we ride it out with people. When we have a bad day, when we, we have a, a conflict, when we have communication that breaks down, we don't just say, well, I'm out. That's it. I'm not going to try anymore. As we just keep going back and doing it again and again because we're family. Families don't give much room for being touchy, easily offended, or easily incensed because there's too much interaction. You're going to be just living too close together and you have to learn to get over things. If you aren't a person who, doesn't, who, who gets over things, I wouldn't want to live in your house. This is, this is the gift of family to marriage and children is that, that when we get married, we take these vows to one another. We obligate ourselves for, for I always remind the couples I do premarital counseling on, you, you don't commit each other to, we're gonna, I'm going to love you always and we're always going to have these great days. We talk about all these you know, bad things for better or for worse, richer or poorer. All these bad conditions are part of the promise that we make. Because that's what you need the covenant for. You, you don't need to make a covenant for, I promise to have good days with you always and to love you when you look pretty 
and, and, and to, to, whenever you compliment me, to, to embrace you. But you don't have to be convinced to do that. You have to be convinced and you have to commit yourself to saying, I'm going to be this for you. Wouldn't it be useful if we did something similar in the church? Like, it, like the, the way that couples get married, if we had vows when you became a member of a church. Oh, we do. Tonight, when you come back to worship this evening at 6 p.m., you're going to see members take public vows before the congregation, ones they, they've already made before the elders of the church. And you're going to hear them say these words. It, it, say, say, I do, in response to these words. Do you pr- resolve and promise in humble reliance upon the grace of the Holy Spirit that you will endeavor to live as becomes the followers of Christ? Just a reminder, how do followers of Christ live? They love the brethren. You're going to hear this question. Do you promise to support the church in its worship and work to the best of your ability? What's a church? It's a bunch of people who are gathered together under Christ. You'll hear this question. Do you submit yourself to the government and discipline the church and promise to study its purity and peace? Why do you have to study or pursue peace in the church? Because there's going to be conflict. And so you're committing yourself ahead of time, saying, I understand I'm moving into a place where there is going to be conflict. We're going to need resolutions by, by leaders of the church. And I'm going to be committed to follow that out wherever it goes to, to see those things resolved. Why? Because I love Christ and because I love you, even if I don't like you right now. So Abby and Stephen and, and, and Sully and, and Karis, they're all going to stand up here and they're going to make those, those promises before you publicly. And knowing that you've already made those promises towards them that you already see them in this way, that you have this commitment to love them for who they are and how they are and when they are and wherever they are because this is who we are as believers. And then there's the last thing, and I'll, I'll try and wrap it up with this, but one of the things that, that is so easily missed in this passage because the word is so small, it's only two letters. But I want you to look at in, in the beginning part of verse 10. And I'll go back and read you to give you the context. Paul says, but concerning brotherly love, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another, and indeed you do so toward all their brethren who are in all Macedonia. Paul says, you do so. He, he uses the, this, this one Greek word, poieo, it's just a simple little word, and here's the way it can be translated. I'll, and I'll give you the multitude. I'm not saying every single Meaning fits into this one verse, but you get the range of meaning here and you understand what it's driving you towards. You could translate this word as to do or to make or to perform or to act or to carry out or to cause to be or to work or to toil or to create or to fashion or to behave towards someone in a particular way or to assign a task or to make a profit. Do you notice any connections in those? These are very active words. These are very very busy ways of being and, and, and functioning. And, and the point is, is that the church, what, what this church is doing is that they are doing. They are active. They are being what they are supposed to be in obeying the command to love. It is working itself out. And of course, if we were to go back and read 1 Corinthians 13, what would we find in that famous love passage that people want to romance about is it's talking about committing yourself with a, an abundance of verbs driving you to live with people who are difficult to live with and function toward them in a way that's positive and active and, and reconciling. It's not that there's no affection in the church family. There Absolutely, there should be affection among us. But our affection is something that shows itself, it works itself out, and we're supposed to be ambitious in it. There is a connection between labor and love throughout your Bibles. 
Paul began the letter commending their labor of love. He concludes the letter calling to esteem highly in love for the work's sake of the leaders. He would say to, to those in Galatia, for through the Spirit, for, uh, for through the Spirit, eagerly wait for the hope of the righteousness by faith, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but faith working through love. Paul reminds us in Ephesians 4.16 that the body edifies itself, it builds itself up, it is working to make bigger and better and stronger and more resilient itself in love. The writer of Hebrews reminds us, for God is not so unjust to forget your work and labor of love. We have an obligation to love. And that's, it's an obligation to love that's supposed to spread out throughout the congregation, to every corner of the congregation, but also throughout the world. Next weekend, we'll be celebrating our missions conference. And we're, we're observing, but we're also in, we're in the business of doing with that. David Rios and Oliver Pierce, William Castro, Jagar Chinovan, Matt Lamus, they're going to give us an opportunity to, to know and to remember, but also to serve, to serve them as they leave, to, 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 to be more connected to them that we might love them more in the future, be more resolved to be a part of their ministry and the work of prayer and the sending of gifts and the equipping of them for ministry. So again, I know this is the Apostle Paul's letter and his word, but I'll take you back to John. Because he says it so clearly and so usefully. He says, my little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. My friends, this is what you have been called to, to love the brethren, the people around you and the people going out from you in that resilient way that Christ has taught us through his example of loving us. Let's pray together. Let's pray together. Our Lord God, we bless and thank you that you have again remembered us with such love as you have, such a persevering love. Father, we have tested you time and again, and yet you continue to hold us as your children, to remind us of the inheritance that belongs to us, to discipline in love and to restore us back to yourself. We pray, Father, that as we are loved by you, we might love you in return. And as we are loved by you, Lord, we might love outwardly. We might be ready to be those who do and to perform, who act for the benefit of others, who sacrifice ourselves willingly and gladly. People in all circumstances, that we would indeed have a love and a charity toward all men. And we pray these things in Christ.